Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, in the 1970s, psychologist John Allen Lee created the color wheel theory of love. It is a love classification system based on Greek and Latin concepts. One of the three primary types is mania. This refers to a type of love that can turn manic or obsessive. This obsessive love can often involve a relationship that does not actually exist, a relationship that somebody has constructed in their mind. But what happens when this obsessive love turns deadly? Welcome to episode 30 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Police in Chuliota, Florida, received a phone call from a man who said he was concerned about one of his colleagues. Christopher Sisko explained that Cody Amato, a 31-year-old who worked as a certified nurse anaesthetist at Avent Health in East Orlando, had not come into work that morning. The call came into the dispatch office around 9am on January 25th, 2019. Cody's colleague Christopher relayed what had happened. When Cody did not arrive at work... Christopher tried to contact him, but the calls went unanswered. This was entirely out of character for Cody, who had never missed a day of work in the five years he had been employed at the hospital. There was even more cause for concern. Cody had been scheduled to perform surgery that morning. A consummate professional, If Cody was sick, there was no question he would have immediately made other arrangements. Christopher Sisko mentioned to the dispatcher that Cody had a severely depressed brother, and he was worried that a family tragedy could have taken place. 
Christopher just wanted to make sure that everybody was okay. Deputies were sent to Cody Amato's home located in the Picket Down subdivision on Sultan Circle. Officers rang the doorbell, but received neither an answer nor heard a sound from inside. They walked around the perimeter of the property and checked the windows. All of them were locked. The officers returned to the front of the home and audibly announced themselves, activating their vehicle air horn. There was nothing but silence. No movement could be seen at the windows. Nobody acknowledged their presence. Cody Amato's four-door green Honda was parked in the driveway, and in the garage deputies could see two other vehicles. After receiving no response, Deputy Todd Moderson opened a deadbolt on the back door using a knife. So, uh, based on my 28 years of law enforcement experience, you sort of learn little tricks uh, that you can do to try to um, access homes. And one of the things that I know that is if a deadbolt isn't fully engaged, that you can sometimes use an instrument such as a knife to try to slide that deadbolt back. I tried it on the front, it didn't work, it was fully engaged. I tried it on the back door, as you're facing the home, it would be the back right of the home, and there was a back door that I was able to slide the deadbolt using my knife over, creating an access point to the home. Upon entering the property, Deputy Modison observed the lifeless body of a male. He was lying on his back in a puddle of blood in the kitchen. However, the man appeared to be much older than 31-year-old Cody Amato. The deputy proceeded through the rest of the home. At the doorway leading to the garage, another grim discovery. A second deceased male. He was in a fetal position with blood seeping from his eyes. Near the body lay a 9mm semi-automatic handgun. The second victim appeared much closer to Cody Amato's age than the first. Deputy Moderson continued to undertake his sweep of the home. As he entered the office, a third body, this time a female. She was seated in a chair, slumped over a computer desk. There was blood covering her face. The three bodies were later identified as Cody Amato and his parents, 61-year-old Margaret and 59-year-old Chad. The scene depicted a violent struggle. While the garage door was closed when deputies arrived, crime scene investigators found blood on the doorframe and door jam. This was the spot where Cody Amato's body had been discovered, and it indicated that the door was open when Cody was shot once in the head. The gunshot wound had entered just underneath the right eye, and then exited at the lower half of the back of the head. There was evidence that a bullet had impacted the door leading to the garage, which showed that Cody Amato had been standing when he was shot. There was an additional bullet hole in the doorframe. Crime scene investigators determined the bullet had struck the frame before continuing into the drywall. 
In the kitchen, Cody's father, Chad, had been shot twice in the head. Evidence showed that he had been shot once while standing near the cabinet south of the kitchen. He fell to the ground, still alive, but fatally wounded. Chad Amato managed to crawl his way to the centre island of the kitchen, where he was shot once more, execution style, to the back of the head. In the office located downstairs close to the kitchen, Margaret Amato had been shot twice. The first gunshot wound entered her head, followed by a second which had travelled through a phone on the desk. The bullet drove itself into the wall. While there were three bodies, the Amatos were a family of five. The couple had two other sons, their eldest Jason and Grant, who was a few years younger than Cody. Jason was not close with his family and lived elsewhere, but Grant lived with his loved ones at the home on Sultan Circle. Grant had been struggling with depression. He was the brother that Cody's colleague had warned deputies about, but Grant Amato was nowhere to be found. His 1996 white Honda Accord DX was also noticeably absent from the driveway. A press conference was held to inform the public of the unsettling find inside the Amato family's home. Sheriff Dennis Lima stated, It's a tragedy any way you look at it. It looks like this wasn't a random act of violence. It looks like the person responsible for these murders was known to the family, and we're going to do everything we can to get this person in custody very, very soon. As the investigation began, a bolo or be on the lookout was issued for Grant Amato. A check of licensed tag records was made to see if his car had been picked up elsewhere. Toll records indicated that it travelled eastbound on State Road 408 and Dean Road at 10.51am. The vehicle was then captured moving westbound on State Road 408 and Dean Road at 12.39pm before again travelling eastbound on the same road at 1.41pm. Deputies journeyed to the area, but neither the car nor a motto could be found. While the search for Grant Amato was underway, investigators made contact with those closest to the family, not only to inform them of the tragedy, but to try and uncover if the victims had any enemies. Investigator Eva Marie Moltari spoke with Sloane Young, the girlfriend of Cody Amato. She provided a very ominous insight into the family's dynamic, which focused mainly on Grant Amato and the troubles he had been facing. Amato was a registered nurse and had been working for some time at Advent Health alongside his brother. In June 2018, staff at the hospital had found eight vials of propofol in two rooms that Grant Imotto had been overseeing. Propofol is a potent anaesthetic and a sedative. 
Records indicated that he had taken the drugs from a storage machine. When confronted about the theft, Amato told hospital authorities that he had stolen the drug for patients that were not adequately relaxed by doctor-ordered medication. There were concerns that Amato had in fact been administering the drugs to keep patients subdued while on his shift. During the confrontation, Amato expressed suicidal thoughts and hospital staff called the police. When officers arrived, one questioned Amato. They asked if he had considered taking his own life, to which he replied, No, sir. Never had any thoughts like that. Amato was then asked, Ever thought about how you would do it? He responded, No. Never really had the balls to think about anything like that. Grant Amato was arrested at the hospital, but officers concluded that he did not fit the criteria to be held for observation under Florida's Baker Act which allows people who are a danger to themselves or to others to be involuntarily committed to a psychiatric facility. It was later determined by the state's attorney's office that the case was not suitable for prosecution. Following this incident, Grant Amato was fired and he dropped out of anesthesiology school after failing his exams. Zamotto's professional life unravelled, he turned to the internet. There he started to converse with a woman who lived in Bulgaria named Sylvia Vensis-Lavova. While Amotto characterised this as a relationship, in reality his contact with Sylvia was far from it. In fact, it was a business transaction. Sylvia, or Sylvie as she was more commonly known, used MyFreeCams, a live-streaming pornographic website. Grantamotto was a client that spent a lot of money paying to watch Sylvie. At first, Grantamotto began to ask for money from his father and brother, claiming that he was using it to promote himself on the live-streaming website Twitch. His family members were more than happy to oblige, glad to support Amato as he focused his efforts on what they believed was a new business endeavour. In reality, Grant Amato used the money to purchase time to chat with Sylvie. He became infatuated. Amato spent hours each night speaking with Sylvie and watching her dance and model provocative clothing. His infatuation developed into an obsession. Namoto needed to con loved ones out of more money to satisfy what had become an addiction. He was purchasing 5,000 tokens at a time for $600. Sylvie's shows on my free cams cost 90 tokens per minute to watch. By December, Grant Amato had stolen $60,000 from his brother Cody and had stolen Cody's firearms to sell. He had also stolen $150,000 from his parents. With this money, not only would Amato purchase tokens to watch Sylvie perform, but he would also send her revealing clothing and sex toys, 
which he would then model for him in sexually explicit photographs and videos. Amato spent hours each night interacting with Sylvie. Private messaging then turned to direct messaging on Twitter, and Amato would even pay to Skype with her. Sylvie erroneously believed that the money was Grant Amato's, but she had been fed untruths from a client who mistakenly thought he was her suitor. For Amato, the relationship appeared to have all the hallmarks of a true love story. He later said to ABC News, We were acting like a couple of high schoolers, like falling in love because we were talking on the phone all the time. It's juvenile to spend that much time together. But then she would rationalise that. Well, we don't get to physically see each other. Eventually, Amato's family learned the truth. They were devastated by the betrayal, and when confronted, Amato was left with no other choice. He admitted he stole the money and where he spent his ill-gotten gains. The family made contact with Sylvie and informed her what was going on, that the cash Grant Amato was spending and sending to her was not his own but had been stolen from his family. Amato was distraught as Sylvie became distant. The relationship with his parents was strained. On December 19th, 2018, his mother Margaret and brother Cody called the police to report Amato missing. He was depressed and potentially suicidal. They explained that Amato had recently lost his job and had been kicked out of nurse anaesthetist school. He had expressed, quote, strong feelings of worthlessness. That afternoon, Amato had left the family home and sent a text message to his mother. It mentioned that he was tired of his problems and was going to handle it his own way. Margaret was concerned that her son would harm himself and that he had access to guns. The missing person report reads in part, Both Mrs. Amato and Cody say that this is so out of character for Grant and that they are 100% convinced he will try to harm himself. However, Grant Amato made no attempts to take his life. He travelled to see his Aunt Donna. She lived in a popka. Donna called Amato's parents and informed them that their son was safe and was staying with her. Concerned, they asked Donna to hide all of the weapons in the home. The family took 12-hour shifts outside Donna's home to ensure that Amato would not try to leave and harm himself. One morning at around 3am, the family held an intervention in Donna's driveway. Grant Amato was given an ultimatum by his parents. If he wanted to continue living at the home, he needed to complete a 60-day internet and sex addiction program at Cornerstone, a facility located in Fort Lauderdale. Amato conceded and on December 22nd he was driven to the facility by his parents. Meanwhile, 
Donna discovered that Amato had obtained her credit card details and also stolen the credit card information that belonged to Troy, Donna's husband, his grandmother Gloria, and even one of his cousins. Amato would use their credit cards to purchase tokens for Sylvie's online cam show. While Donna had wanted to press charges, Amato's father Chad encouraged her not to. During a phone call with his sister-in-law, he broke down in tears. It was the first time Donna had ever heard him cry. Chad explained the predicament with his son and told Donna that he had taken care of $150,000 worth of debt created by Grant Amato by remortgaging the house. He told his sister-in-law, Yeah, I'm going to have to work a few more years than I thought I'd have to, but it's okay. I'll do it for Grant. I don't want him to go to jail. Grant Imoto stayed in the rehab facility for two weeks, returning home on January 5th. Once home, Chad took his son out for dinner at California Pizza Kitchen in Waterford Lakes. He handed him a list of rules he needed to abide by if Amato wanted to continue living at the family home. These rules included finding a job and to stop spending all night online. Amato's parents also told their son he needed to go to therapy and said that his mobile service would be terminated. He was also informed that the family would no longer pay his debts. They had all come together to try and help and keep a motto out of any legal trouble. In addition to his father remortgaging the home, they had paid $8,000 for an attorney and $15,000 for the short stay in rehab. Another stipulation was that a motto must cut off all contact with Sylvie Vences Lavova. This rule in particular did not sit well with Grant Amato who had come to believe that the relationship was more than business and the feelings were reciprocated by Sylvie. In one voice recording, a motto told her, I'm asking you if you can please, pretty please, send me one of your videos. I love it so much when you just send it to me. I don't like buying your stuff. It makes me feel weird. Grant Imotto continued to chat with Sylvie through a Twitter account, which he accessed using his mother's mobile phone. In one message, Imotto admired Sylvie's crazy body. She responded by sending him a link on my free cams. Grant Imotto replied, With this link, it feels even better now. I can't wait to fucking watch you be super innocent in those tempting panties. But I'm so happy to be back. It just feels right. Amato was back in the world of online pornography, where he was mistaking a sex worker for his girlfriend. He was a man obsessed. When investigators spoke with Cody Amato's girlfriend Sloan, She said that she had been at work with Cody shortly after 9pm on January 24th 
when he received a phone call asking that he come home immediately. After hanging up, Cody was asked by Sloan what was wrong, and he responded, Stupid fucking bullshit. With that, he rushed out of the hospital and drove home. Around half an hour later, Sloan sent a text message to Cody and asked how he was. The reply read that everything was all okay and she didn't need to worry about him. After this text message, there was no further correspondence. It was not until the following morning when Cody did not show up for work that the alarm was raised. Officers wanted to know more about the family dynamic. Grantamoto looked more and more like a suspect, and there was something else that had aroused suspicion. There was no sign of a break-in at the home, which led to the presumption that the family must have known their killer. Robbery had already been ruled out as a motive. Despite the fact numerous valuables were in plain sight, nothing from the home had been stolen. Investigators made contact with Amato's surviving brother, Jason. He explained that he only saw his family around three times a year, but he spoke with his mother around once a week. Jason was asked whether he could think of anybody that would want to harm his family. Only one name popped into his mind. His brother Grant Emoto. Jason reiterated a very similar story to Sloan Young's account, revealing that Emoto had been stealing large amounts of money from the family. Jason also said that his brother had received mail from a woman in Bulgaria, meaning that Emoto had given Sylvie the family's address. This was an issue within the household, and it had deeply concerned his mother, Margaret. Jason told investigators the last time he had seen Grant Emoto was on December 22, 2018, when Emoto was taken to the Internet and Sex Addiction Program in Fort Lauderdale. Jason said that the last time he spoke to his mother was on January 16th. He believed that since his brother had returned from the rehab facility, Amato's behaviour had improved, and his mother said he had been searching for jobs. This testimony, combined with the fact that Grant Amato could not be found, led to fears that he could have been involved in the massacre. Investigating authorities immediately announced that Amato was a person of interest in the murders of his family and warned the public that he should be considered armed and dangerous. Antimoto was described as standing at 5 feet 10 inches tall, weighing 120 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. Officers said that he could be driving a white 1996 Honda Accord with the license plate L1GH7. Amoto could be in the Orlando area, around 22 miles southwest of the family home. At around 7.45am on January 26th, the white Honda Accord was discovered in the parking lot of the Doubletree Hotel by Hilton, 
located on Hitech Avenue in Orlando. Deputies confirmed that Grant Amato was registered as a guest in the hotel and was staying in room 336 on the third floor. Amato had checked in at 2.47pm the previous day and had only registered to stay for one night. As deputies were approaching the hotel room, a man stepped out. It was Grant Amato. He was arrested without incident and began calmly conversing with the officers. Amato was informed that three members of his family had been murdered and he voluntarily went to Seminole County Sheriff's Office in Sanford to be questioned. At the Sheriff's Office, Grantin Motto spoke at great length with investigators Daniel Anderson and Eva Marie Multari. He told them about his life and hobbies. Still, he never once inquired about what had happened to his slaughtered family, whether there was a suspect in the case, or whether a motive had been uncovered. When the conversation finally shifted to the family, Amato denied any involvement in the killings. One of the investigators asked him, I think there was something that obviously happened at the house. Tell me what happened. Amato replied, I don't know what happened. The investigator then said, I know better. Listen to me. I know better. I can help you, Grant. With honesty, I can help you with honesty. The motto was informed that a neighbour had told investigators that she had seen him leaving the neighbourhood in his car at around 8am on the day the murders were discovered. The motto maintained the person seen was not him. He then began to speak about the troubles the family had been facing and acknowledged that he had been stealing. To all this, you think you were in the wrong? I mean, yeah. To I mean, some, some extent? To some extent, you know. Uh, spending that amount of money, it's idiotic to do that, you know. Especially when you're not making So 200000 Right. By December 2018, things had been improving. The grand theft charge relating to the drugs at the hospital had been dropped. And Grant Amato, his brother Cody, and a friend took a vacation to Japan. When Amato returned home on December 15th, he claimed that his father was overbearing and was still angry about the theft and the fact that his son was not employed. Amato said, With him, it was every single day, hours a day. He'd come home from work and then he would just talk to me about the same exact thing over and over and over and over again. Amato spoke to the investigators about January 24th. He said that that night he became embroiled in a heated argument with his father. Chad had discovered that his son was still interacting with Sylvie online and this went against the rules the family had put in place. He was wildly frustrated at the lack of change and how Grant Amato's actions continued to impact the entire family, both financially and emotionally. When speaking with investigators, Amato claimed that the argument turned physical 
when his father grabbed him by the shirt. He did, however, acknowledge that his father did not hurt him. As the argument grew heated, Margaret sat working at the computer, not wanting to get involved in the dispute. At his wit's end, Chad told his son he needed to pack up his belongings and leave the family home. If he could not stick to a simple set of rules, he could no longer live there. Over the next couple of hours, Grant Emoto explained that he had gathered up some of his belongings and packed them into his car. During the interview with investigators, Emoto first claimed that he left the home between 9pm and 9.30pm. He said he went to Fort Christmas Road, around a 40-minute drive away. He professed that he waited there at the side of the road for his brother Cody to return from work. Amato said that Cody pulled in alongside him. They chatted, and according to Amato, Cody would return home to try and sort things out. This claim was deemed ludicrous by investigators. They said it was highly unlikely that he would have randomly met with Cody at the side of the road. Eventually, Grant Amato admitted that he had made this up. He said he had in fact stayed at home and waited for Cody to arrive from work. I mean, he got home at, I think, like 10.30. I still think that's when he got home. It was like around 10.30. I don't know why he was able to leave early. And what was going on at the house when he arrived? My uh, dad and my mom were arguing, and then I was still just packing up all my stuff or gathering the things that I could gather. Um, and then when Cody got home, he started to transgress with my dad, and I was still kind of just staying out of it and doing my own thing. And then the end result was still the end result, and then I had to still leave. According to Grant Emoto, when his brother returned home, he explained the situation to Cody, who told him that he would take care of things and make them better. Onomoto had at first said he left between 9pm and 9.30pm. He now admitted that it was closer to midnight. He asserted that he spent the night in the parking lot of a nearby public supermarket. His phone records indicated that Onomoto had logged on to the public's Wi-Fi and then used Cody's USAA checking account to buy $600 worth of tokens to watch Sylvie. The following morning, Grant Amato said he drove to a job interview off Lee Vista Road. This was corroborated by Erica Johansson, who said that she had interviewed him. According to the interviewer, Amato came across as very tired and, quote, creepy. The following day, Amato insisted that he return to the area where his family lived. He did intend going back to the family home, but then changed his mind at the last minute. One of the investigators asked him if, while in the neighbourhood, Amato had seen anything suspicious. He replied that he had not. By this point, deputies would have been at the Amato's home, 
and grant a motto was informed of this. Amato again admitted that he was being deceptive and said that when he came to the neighbourhood, he saw a police car and a news van parked outside the family's home. Amato was asked why, upon seeing something so unusual, he did not inquire as to what was going on or at least attempt to contact his family. Amato could not provide an explanation. From there, he said that he went to the Panera Bread restaurant in Waterford Lakes in East Orlando, where he used the Wi-Fi to search top news stories. Amato explained that the first story that came up was about a shooting in the family's neighbourhood. The news video he watched showed a fence and driveway. He identified it as looking similar to his family's home. Amato was asked why he did not contact his loved ones after watching the video, to which he responded, I just didn't want to know. Tell me what you think, because I, I can tell by I've done this for a long, long time, and I read people the way they act and the way they, they talk to me and the way they answer questions. There's something you want to tell us. I can see it in your eyes, I can see it in your body language, and just your the way you act. Now's the time. Now at the time, if there's something you want to get off your chest and give us an explanation of what's bothering you, now is the exact time to do it. And I, I, I'm giving you that opportunity um, right now to tell me some, something you want to get off your chest. It's there. I can see it in your face. I can see it in your eyes. You're out about that night. You're upset about it. You're upset about it. You've been that since we've talked to you. I can see there's something been bothering you. Even though I don't know you from Adam's house, can't you see things in people that... Something really bothered this guy. It's not that, you know, I spent a bunch of money I shouldn't have on this girl. So be it. You did. It's over with. Money can be made back. Something's bothering you. I'm just worried about what is all transpiring from this. I, I think at this point right now, to be honest with you, Grant, you know what it is. By this point, Grant Amato was the main suspect in the killings. When presented with this, Amato continued to deny any involvement. He did, however, acknowledge that he was the only person to have motive and opportunity. Officers handed a motto photographs of the crime scene, which included graphic images of his deceased family. Investigator Eva Marie Moltari showed him a photograph of his brother Cody and asked, Did you leave the house with your brother Cody looking like that? The motto covered his face. The investigator then pulled out two more photographs and asked, Well, did you leave the house with your father looking like that? Or your mother? Is that how you left your family? In response, Grant Amato's voice began to quiver as he simply replied, No. Scanning through the horrific photographs, Amato was asked by the investigators whether he had any remorse for the killings. He replied that his family blamed him for months for stealing from them, ruining their lives and disobeying the house rules. He then remarked that he might as well be blamed for the murders as well. As Grant Amato was being interviewed, a search warrant to examine his car was executed. Inside, 
crime scene analyst Eric Brothers came across a handwritten letter which appeared to have been written from Cody Amato's perspective. It read, Grant, I'll take care of all your problems. I just need you back. I can't live without you, brother. I said I'd take care of all your problems at the house. And I have. No one will bother you again regarding this. Just please come home. The handwriting was determined to be Grant Amato's. When asked about the letter, Amato admitted that he had written it, but claimed he was quoting what Cody had told him the night that he was kicked out of the family's home. Amato was asked why he had authored it in the first person from Cody's perspective. Amato said he was simply documenting the conversation he had with his brother. Officers also obtained a search warrant for the Doubletree Hotel where Grant and Motto had been staying. They recovered multiple credit cards belonging to his brother and father. Investigators believed it evident Amato was trying to portray the murders as a murder-suicide perpetrated by his brother Cody. However, the medical examiner who had performed the autopsy determined there was no possibility that Cody's injuries were self-inflicted. The most likely scenario that investigators were working on was that Grant Imotto had shot and killed his mother first while she sat at a desk in the office. The last activity noted on her computer was at 4.44pm. Amato then waited for his father to come home from work around 30 minutes later. Once Chad Amato was dead, it was speculated that Amato lay in wait for his brother Cody. As Cody entered the family home through the garage, he too was shot dead. Unfortunately at the time, there was not enough evidence to detain Grant Amato, so he was allowed to leave the sheriff's office that afternoon. Before leaving, an investigator asked him questions to determine whether he was eligible to be held under Florida's Baker Act. However, he was not, and at 4.34pm, Amato left. From there, Grant Amato checked in to a hotel in Lake Mary, as the investigation into his involvement was ramped up. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Amato family were known as a football family, and they liked to attend the Florida Gators home games. Chad Amato was a pharmacist, and described as a self-taught computer guru. He was a very protective father and husband. He had a deep love for Margaret and had posted on his personal website, I consider myself fortunate to have a soulmate of the same spiritual wavelength. She is the moon to my son. Chad was not Jason's biological father, When Margaret had married Chad, he adopted Jason as his own son. Margaret Amato was known as a kind and caring woman who loved her family deeply. Her passion was caring for horses. Around ten years earlier, Margaret had rescued a former racehorse called Lady. The animal kept wandering into Margaret's yard, and she could tell that the animal was hungry. Margaret took the horse under her wing and found her a home at nearby Miracle Lane Stables. Margaret would get on her bicycle almost every day and cycle down to the stables. She built up a relationship with Lady and over time was able to rehabilitate her. A neighbour, Jewel Teban, said that while training Lady, Margaret was bucked off several times Still, her commitment to the horse never wavered. Jules said, Some of us would shake our heads, but Margaret never gave up on Lady, and it blossomed into a wonderful relationship because Margaret never gave up. After Lady passed away, Margaret continued to visit the stables, just so she could be close to the horses. Following Margaret's death, the owner of the Miracle Lane stable, Sherry Brabaneck, had a plaque made in Margaret's honour. It poignantly reads, To our barn sister Margaret and her lady. Thank you for the love and friendship. We will ride with you in our hearts forever. As for brothers Grant and Cody Amato, they had been inseparable. While students at Timber Creek High School, they joined the weightlifting team together and later both decided they would go into nursing school and then nurse anaesthetist school. The brothers had a shared passion for anime. Cody was well-liked at the hospital where he worked and he cared deeply for his patients, always making sure to treat them with respect. In fact, Cody always liked to show up for work early. It was at the hospital where Cody met his girlfriend, Sloane. They had started out as friends, but in the months leading up to Cody Amato's murder, their relationship had blossomed into a romance. When his colleagues learned of Cody's death, they set up a GoFundMe page. They raised $6,000 for a Barry University scholarship in his honour. 
just the morning after Grant Amato was interviewed and released. He was arrested and charged with three counts of first-degree murder. He appeared in court for a bond hearing, where he was ordered to be held without bond. He was transported to the Seminole County Jail. Outside of court, his public defender Jeff Dowdy told Channel 9, Obviously, it's a tragic case, but there is not that much there. Dowdy also remarked to WOFL-TV, There's some issues there. I think we have some mental health issues. According to defence attorney Dowdy, investigators had yet to provide any forensic evidence which linked his client to the murders and the attorney confirmed that Amato had voluntarily provided investigators with a DNA swap. At the beginning of February, a grand jury would hand down indictments on the three first-degree murder charges. It was now up to the prosecution to decide whether they would be seeking the death penalty against Amato if he were convicted. Todd Brown, a spokesperson for the Seminole Bravard State Attorney's Office, said in a statement, The option to pursue capital punishment in the case is still under review. Shortly thereafter, prosecutors decided that Grant Emoto would be put to death if convicted of the crimes. In a court filing, State Attorney Phil Archer and Assistant State Attorney Stuart Stone wrote that Imoto had killed his family, quote, in a cold, calculated and premeditated murder without any pretense or moral or legal justification. When the decision was announced, Defence Attorney Jeff Dowdy said he had still not been presented with any forensic evidence which linked his client to the murders and would therefore be requesting his client be released on bond awaiting trial. A hearing on the matter was held towards the end of March, during which a 16-minute video was presented. It was taken at the Seminole County Sheriff's Office as Grant Amato and his brother Jason sat down to talk about the murders. At the time, Amato was just a person of interest in the investigation. His brother asked him if he was involved and inquired when he had last seen his family. Jason said to his brother, I'm just going to ask you plain out. You are not part of it in any way? Aunt Amato replied, No, Dad had kicked me out on Thursday because I was still talking to the woman that had caused everything and I was using Mum's cell phone to do that with her knowledge but not Cody or Dad. Jason responded, So he forced you. He basically told you you had to leave. Motto replied, Yeah. It is evident from the footage that Jason does not quite believe his brother. Things aren't adding up. I'm really confused, Grant. I don't understand. How did you get money to pay for a hotel? I still had a few hundred dollars on my debit card, and then Cody uh, gave me his debit card. Okay. And... I don't know. 
I want to believe you, Grant, but you're the last person that I could put in that house. And I know what happened over the last six months. I can understand the troubles that you've gone through, but it's hard for me to think that you would break to this point. Mm-hmm. But I don't... I, who else can I blame? Who? How are we going to find out who did this? I don't know. I don't have the answers. Jason Amato went on to share his heartbreak of having to tell their mother's friends that she was dead and spoke about the tough decision he made not to donate Cody's organs. Jason said that the hardest thing to accept was that he was not at home when the family were killed. Jason was clearly suspicious of his brother. I may not have been able to stop you, he said. You probably may have hurt me too, but at least I would have known what happened. Jason also remarked that he would need to coordinate with the mortuary to decide what to do with the bodies, before telling Grantamoto he would have no say in the decision, before telling his brother, you already made the decision on whether or not they're going to live or not. That's not your job. Grantamoto never denied the accusations. The conversation ended with the brothers embracing, and Jason stating, I'm going to pray for you, brother, because I can't pray for mum, dad, or Cody anymore. After the video, Jason spoke before a judge about the problems Grantimotto had been having with the rest of the family. He detailed the stolen money and the online relationship with Sylvie. Prosecutor Stuart Stone said that Grant and Motto's lack of denials was essentially an implicit confession, saying, Everything points to the defendant in this case and no one else. No one else had any issues or problems with the victims. Lamotto's defence attorney rebuffed this and said that everything his client had told investigators about his whereabouts in the aftermath of the murders had been corroborated with his forensic footprint. The attorney highlighted the fact that Amato had not tried to evade arrest as evidence of his innocence, and once again pointed out that no forensic evidence had linked Amato to the murders. Circuit Judge Jessica Rexseidler said that the evidence against Grantimotto was circumstantial, but concluded that she had concerns about contrary statements that Amato had made. His bond was denied. Grantimotto subsequently pleaded not guilty to the murders. While Grantimotto denied any involvement in the murders of his family, his brother Jason was not the only one who did not believe him. Motto's grandmother Gloria spoke with investigators and said she believed that her grandson had been the one to pull the trigger. She said, That kid did it. Grant killed them. Motto's aunt Donna also told investigators she believed Motto had carried out the murders for monetary gain. The entire family knew how obsessive Amato had become with Sylvie, 
and he would do anything to continue lavishing her with money and gifts. In fact, a motto had even stolen from his aunt while staying with her in December. Investigators would dig deeper into Grant Amato's life, discovering that he had created an entire fantasy existence online. Officers came across a letter that Amato had written to six friends that he had made through an online pornography group. In the letter, Amato admitted that the life he presented to them was a complete fabrication. He had previously claimed to these friends, and also to Sylvie, that he lived alone, drove a BMW, and worked as a professional gamer, raking in hundreds of thousands of dollars each year. The reality was much different. Amato was unemployed. He lived with his parents, and he certainly did not own a BMW, nor could afford one. The money that Grant Motto had been flashing across the internet had been defrauded from his family. In the letter, Amato also wrote about the anger he felt towards his loved ones after they convinced him to undergo treatment for sex and internet addiction. He referred to his father Chad as controlling and abusive, and as for his mother Margaret... He said she was simply around for security. Amato also mentioned his brother Cody, writing that he was, quote, also controlling and does not understand how I could care for someone as much as I cared for Sylvie. The letter had been composed sometime after Amato had left the rehab facility in Fort Lauderdale. He felt despondent over his loss of contact with Sylvie. The motto wrote, I hate myself for what I did, and I hate the thought of never getting to be with her again. After everything that I gave and everything that I tried to do with her, I just can't comprehend being without her. As the defence and prosecution were preparing for the upcoming trial, Grant Motto started writing letters from behind bars. The Seminole County Jail did not allow inmates to receive or send physical correspondence. They needed to set up an email account on a tablet. When setting up the account, Motto made his password hint Shinigami which is a deity in Japanese culture that invites humans to their deaths. He then typed up a six-page letter to Ryan Cooney, who was the girlfriend of a fellow inmate at the Seminole County Jail. Amato and the inmate had bonded over their history of working in the medical field. Amato wrote, Hello, Ryan. My name is Grant. I have become somewhat of a celebrity for something I never did and something that has robbed me of my entire family and life. Amato told Ryan about the relationship he had with Sylvie, writing, I'm sure you have heard about the terrible things about me and my girlfriend that the media have lied about. Unfortunately for me, I can't contact the woman I love while I'm in here. I know the pain of being separated from the woman you love. 
Motto even suggested that the two couples go out on a double date, telling Ryan, We've even decided to take a cruise once all this jail stuff is behind us. You and him with my girl and I. In April, Grant and Motto's defence team tried once more to get him out on bond. One of the defence attorneys, Jared Shapiro, said that Amato should be entitled to bail because he had fully cooperated with the investigation. Defence attorney Jeff Dowdy sought a $150,000 bond, while prosecutors sought $25 million. The reason prosecutors requested such a high amount was because of Grant Amato's knowledge of computers. They feared he could make travel documents and flee abroad. Assistant State Attorney Stuart Stone said, The cool girl certainly is one incentive for him to leave the country and go to Bulgaria. During bond hearings, the judge often considers whether the defendant has family ties in the community that would keep them accountable for showing up to court. A motto who stood accused of killing his family obviously did not have that support, and that was something Circuit Judge Jessica Rexidler acknowledged. She said, With all due respect, three of the individuals with whom he had lifelong contact are deceased. Nevertheless, she ultimately set the bond at $750,000. This meant that if Grant Amato could procure three quarters of a million dollars, then he would be allowed to leave jail while awaiting trial. As part of the bond agreement, he was forbidden from accessing the internet and he was to be monitored by a GPS device. Amato was forbidden from leaving central Florida and was not allowed to contact any witnesses in the case. Part of the bond agreement also stipulated that Amato could not use money from his parents' estate to post bond. In an attempt to generate some money, Amato said he would sell exclusive interviews. In an email to New York journalist Colin Archdeacon, Amato said that the task was difficult because he had no contacts on the outside world. He wrote... It seems to be my half-brother's mission to make my life that much harder by not believing me, communicating with me, or helping me, even after I was blessed with a very high bond. Grantimotto also asked the journalist if he knew any millionaires that were willing to help him out, writing, If you happen to know any who would like to post my bond, I'd be eternally grateful and I'd give exclusive rights for you to my story. In another email to WESH reporter David McDaniel, Amato said he would tell his story if he was able to get Bond. The letter read, I just want to feel the sun again, feel the breeze on my skin, feel the simple pleasures that every innocent man feels. Most news organisations have ethical guidelines against financial incentives for exclusive interviews, and despite Grant Emoto's best efforts, his requests were denied by each person he contacted. In another desperate endeavour to access some funds, 
he contacted Dominic Salfi, the trust attorney for his parents' estate. From jail, Amato left a voicemail requesting further documentation. However, since he stood accused of killing his parents, Grant Amato could not touch any inheritance. As the trial was fast approaching, defence attorney Jeff Dowdy filed several motions. He requested that the judge sequester a jury to prevent them from being influenced by news coverage of the murders. Dowdy's motion read in part, The possibility of exposure to internet or social media by a juror during a trial is a preventable error that can cause years of unnecessary litigation. The request was a very rare one, and also very expensive. A sequestered jury is typically housed in a hotel throughout the duration of the trial, and are closely monitored to ensure that they do not come across any information about the case other than what they hear in the courtroom. Grant Amato's defence team also requested an MRI scan to determine his brain function. What's more, the subject of his jail email password would be brought up during one of the pre-trial hearings. The password Shinigami is essentially a Japanese cultural equivalent to the Grim Reaper. The prosecution wanted to present this as evidence during the trial. They considered it an acknowledgement from a motto that he was responsible for the murders. The accused was called into court to testify about the meaning behind the word. He spoke about anime and Japanese culture, something he was fascinated by. When Amato was then asked about the specific word, he said he knew Shingami were gods associated with death, but was not aware of the Grim Reaper equivalents until he read about it in a court motion. After his testimony, Jericho Fine and Blake Turpin, who were also friends with Amato and his brother, accused the defendant of lying. They said that Grant Amato was well-versed in the meaning of the word. However, the judge decided that the password could not be entered into evidence at the upcoming trial. Jury selection for the murder trial began in mid-July 2019. By the 23rd, jurors were seated and opening statements were presented. According to the prosecutors, the murders were a culmination of a downward spiral in Grant Amato's life, a downward spiral that began after he was arrested and then fired from his nursing job, which left him feeling depressed and isolated. In this state, Amato became obsessed with Sylvie and subsequently stole hundreds of thousands of dollars from his family to portray himself as a wealthy, unsuccessful entrepreneur. When he was finally caught out, Motto was given an ultimatum, and when he could not stick to it, he killed his family, and then attempted to implicate his own brother Cody in the murders. During opening statements... Prosecutor Stuart Stone said that after killing his family, Amato had stayed in the home with their bodies for hours, 
meticulously planting evidence that would shift the blame to his brother. Stone said, What the defendant did in this case is he staged a murder-suicide scene, and in order to do that, he planted certain items of evidence at the scene to give the appearance of a murder-suicide. Prosecutor Stone revealed that two handguns and four shell casings were planted near the bodies of Chad and Cody Amato. Chad had a gun holstered at his right hip, but the way he was facing, the person wearing it would need to use their left hand to draw the firearm. Chad was right-handed. The second gun, which had matched the four shell casings, was found just a couple of feet away from Cody. Stone said to the jury, So it would appear, obviously, that's the gun Cody used to kill his mother, kill his father and kill himself. Or so it would appear. That's how Grant Amato would like it to appear. It's wrong. The focus then shifted to the motivation, with the prosecutor telling the court, But why? What was his motive? Why did he kill his family? The answer to that question lies and will be found across the ocean in Bulgaria in a woman named Sylvie, if that's a real name. According to Prosecutor Stuart Stone, Amato was addicted, consumed and possessed by Sylvie. Grant Amato's defence attorney, Jared Shapiro, said to the jury during his opening statements that there was no physical evidence that connected his client to the murders. Shapiro explained that a nefarious combination of drugs, guns and ammunition were found inside the home, including a hydroponic marijuana growing system. Now, your legal duty as the jury in this case is to determine whether the state has proven that Mr. Amato is guilty of committing these murders beyond a reasonable doubt. Your legal duty is not, however, to determine exactly what happened in the Amato household between January 24th and January 25th, 2019. These are two separate questions, but your legal duty in this case is to determine whether the state has met its burden to prove Mr. Amato's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, Mr. Amato is not guilty because the evidence will show these three most important facts in the case. Fact number one, a complete lack of physical evidence linking Mr. Amato to the deaths of his parents and brother. Fact number two, Mr. Amato had no firearm with which to commit these murders because he had sold all of his guns and had no access to any other guns that may have been in the residence. And fact number three, police, when they entered the home of the Amato family, found a nefarious combination of drugs, guns, and ammunition. The evidence will show that there is a complete lack of physical evidence linking Mr. Amato to these deaths. The evidence will show that his family member's DNA is not on any items that were recovered from Mr. Amato. That includes his clothing. The state tested Grant's scrubs and shoes to see if his family member's DNA was on them and none of his family member's DNA was found on his scrubs or shoes. During the first day of the trial, 
Christine Snyder, the Seminole County Sheriff's Office crime scene manager, testified about what she found inside the home. Schneider described it as bloody and said that the evidence indicated the bodies of Cody and Chad Amato had been moved after they were killed. Schneider also suggested that Chad's gun holster was placed on him after he died. Testimony was then presented regarding the marijuana growing system. Crime scene analyst Arthur Rubart told the jury he found several containers of marijuana in the home and in Margaret Amato's car. In the main bathroom, Rubart found a hydroponic growing system, but it was not actively cultivating marijuana. Rubart further testified that he believed the marijuana was for personal use because he found nothing to indicate otherwise. Throughout your career as a crime scene analyst, have you been to crime scenes or been to scenes located at locations that you might consider a drug house? Yes, I have. Or homes that drugs were being sold? Yes, I have. And throughout your investigation at 2112 Sultan Circle, did you find anything that would indicate to you this was a drug house? No, I did not. Did you find anything that would indicate to you that drugs were being sold out of this home? No, I did not. The substances you found, what conclusions were you able to make? That they were for personal use. And you did not find, did you find any baggies or... Uh, labeling mechanisms that might uh, indicate sale of items. No, I do not. Under cross-examination from defense attorney Jeff Dowdy, crime scene analyst acknowledged that he had not processed the scene for fingerprints because the main suspect in the murders lived in the home. Much of the discussion then focused on Chad Imotto's iPhone. Investigators believe that after killing his family, the defendant then cleaned his father's finger and used it to unlock the iPhone and send money to Amato's account. It was noted that Chad's index finger was significantly cleaner than the rest. While the shell casings near the bodies had come from the gun lying near Cody Amato, the bullets that had killed the family had come from another firearm. The prosecution contended that Grant Imotto had fired four rounds from the weapon after killing his family and then strategically placed the shell casings to make it appear as though Cody was the killer. There were a total of three guns found inside the Imotto home, but experts testified that none of them were the murder weapon. In fact, the murder weapon had never been found, but a friend of Cody and Grant Amato's would speculate that it was his gun. Blake Turpin said that in December, Grant Amato was at his home. While playing video games, Amato excused himself to use the restroom. To get to the bathroom, Amato would have had to walk past Turpin's closet, which he kept open. Inside the closet was a case with an IWI Jericho 941 handgun, which Turpin had purchased from another friend Jericho Fine years earlier. 
Turpin estimated that his friend was unsupervised for around ten minutes. The murders occurred around two weeks after this incident. It was not until June that Turpin discovered that the gun was missing from his closet, along with six rounds. He firmly believed that the weapon had been stolen by Grant Amato. Turpin testified, That was my suspicion, is that that's where it went, based on his history of stealing. Blake Turpin was cross-examined by the defence. Well, first let me ask you this, Mr Turpin. Yes, sir. Isn't it true you told the Orange County Sheriff's Office when you made the report on June 11th that you didn't know who stole that gun from, from your home? What I told the officer was, I was not, I did not see anyone walk out the door with my firearm. However, I suspected it might be involved in this case. That's not what you said. You said you had no proof and you don't know. What I said was I did not see him physically take it, but I suspected it was involved in this case. He doesn't believe, well, then, can I refresh your memory? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, no. No, I, yeah, I know which part of it you're referring to. No, yeah. Okay. yeah. Are you finished? Yes, sir. Yeah. Now, isn't that what you told the deputy? What I told the deputy is not necessarily what it says on the bottom of that page, sir. Oh, so the deputy lied? No, that was mistaken. The deputy was mistaken. Is that your testimony? What I told the deputy, sir was that I did not see anyone leave with the firearm, but I suspected that it was involved in this. And his, he said, and his question to that was, did you see anyone take it? I said, no, sir. And you didn't say that, you didn't believe that anyone took that firearm that night? No, sir. Even I, though it says it in the report? That's correct. I immediately after filing that report came here to Seminole County to talk to an uh, officer here. Well, the deputy's report is incorrect, right? That, that last line specifically is, is, incorrect. Not, is incorrect, yes, sir. Okay. An expert from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement would testify that the markings found on the bullets that killed the family were similar to the handguns rifling. The courtroom would then hear from Jericho Fine, the gun's previous owner. Fine said that he had gone with Cody and Grant Amato to Japan in December. While there, he realised that his Discover credit card had been frozen. When he looked at the transaction history, Fine found that more than $600 had been used on my free cams and to buy lingerie. There were two more attempts to buy tokens on my free cams, but these were both declined. Fine found it peculiar, but nothing more was said of the incident. It never dawned on Jericho Fine that it was his friend Grant Imotto with whom he was enjoying a vacation had stolen his credit cards. It was not until Grant Imotto was arrested and the details regarding his obsession with Sylvie were revealed that everything fell into place. The most poignant moment of the trial came when Jason Imotto took the witness stand. As he spoke about his late mother, father and brother, he became emotional. Jason said he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. His girlfriend Christine Varnell could corroborate an airtight alibi. 
Jason told the jury that while doing an inventory at his parents' home, he found the list of rules Chad had written for his son, Grant Amato. Let me, let me show you the document, and I'm showing you a state exhibit 179 now. Let me show you the document. Uh, it's quite detailed, so I'm not going to ask you to read it word for word, but describe to the jury what that uh, document is, state's exhibit 179. What are the contents of it? Um, I guess I would call it uh, like an ultimatum. Uh, some options that were uh, given to Grant to choose between uh, after leaving the facility. And um, based off of some of his choices, there were uh, specific rules and regulations that uh, my father had laid out for him. And uh, give, give some example. I mean, I, I'm not asking to read the entire document. The jury has it. It's going to go back with them. They can read it, but give the uh, the jury some examples of what uh, what are the options given to them. All right. Brian. So uh, the first thing that was covered was living arrangements. You know, does he want to live at home, move out on his own, go to the military? Um, looks like my father pre-wrote this and uh, and then updated it with a different color pen. I'm assuming with a discussion with Grant. So there are some markings and highlightations of things that were discussed and chosen. It looks like Grant um, chose to live at home. Uh, he understood that the family would not cover or pay any current remaining future debts, etc. cetera. Um, uh, goes on to say that, uh, you know, he, some rules are no post midnight internet use. Um, no more all-nighters online, uh, limited TV, install a new AT&T modem um, for logging, wireless, and hard traffic use. It, it says that he terminated his current phone um, and set him up with a new phone that I guess didn't have data or the ability to go on the internet. Uh, some responsibilities where he had to get a job. Um, he had uh, some debts that he had to take care of. Um, no savings. He owed the family some money. Owed the family an apology. Um, it's very detailed. Is there any reference in, uh, there about uh, contact with the uh, woman in Bulgaria? Uh, yes, sir. So, what does um, that say? It informed. It, it states that it informed Grant that they had reached out to this woman to let them know, or to let her know, some of the things that Grant had been saying weren't a hundred percent true, um, and that he wasn't allowed to communicate with her anymore, uh, based off of those lies. Jason Amato said his father had told his brother that if he could not follow the house rules, another option was to join the military. But in Jason's words, his father had made Grant Amato seem like, quote, less of a person by listing the reasons he did not think one of his sons could make it in the military, including the fact Grant Amato was underweight.
Jason then spoke about his conversation with his brother after he was brought in for questioning. First of all, your brother uh, initially denied any type of responsibility for hurting your family. Is that correct? Correct. Yes, sir. During the course of the conversation, were there times where you indirectly and then at one point directly accuse him of killing your family? Uh, yes, I, I did go into uh, meeting my brother just trying to find out what happened to my family. And he was the last one that I knew was there. So I'm sure some of my questions or statements were accusatory. And when you would, and it's on video, the jury's already seen it. When you would directly or indirectly accuse him of your family's death, what was his response? I just um, just remember him mostly being silent and just saying he understood how I felt. I, if you're asking if. He denied any of my accusations. I, I only remember him saying he didn't have anything to do with it when I first walked in. Testimony would be presented regarding the online relationship between Grant and Motto and Sylvie. After all, it was the cornerstone of the prosecution's theory. Assistant State Attorney Dominic Leo presented to the jury 647 photographs of Sylvie in various stages of undress. Forensic investigator Geraldine Blay told the jury that at 11.32pm, after the Amato family had been killed, a thumb drive containing explicit photographs of Sylvie was connected to Amato's computer. Seven minutes later, Chad Amato's iPhone was plugged into his son's computer. It appeared as though whoever connected the phone could not obtain the password, so the phone was then put in recovery mode. Forensic investigator Blaze said that it was her opinion the person attempting to access the device was attempting to wipe Chad Amato's iPhone. One piece of damning testimony came from another forensic scientist, Alison Leneve. Leneve told the jury that gunshot residue was found on a pair of leather gloves belonging to Grant and Motto. Grant and Motto did not offer evidence on his own behalf, and after one week of testimony, the prosecution and defence rested their cases. During closing arguments, Prosecutor Dominic Leo said to the jury that a random intruder had not killed the Amato family. They were not the victim of a drug deal gone wrong, nor a murder-suicide. Prosecutor Leo said the person who killed the Amato family was Grant Amato, and he had done so because the family were keeping him from Sylvie. Grant fell in love with a woman named Sylvie. 
not only did he fall in love with her, he became obsessed with her to the point where that was all that mattered to him. He had lost his job. He was depressed. He was having a contentious relationship with his father and his brother. He finds Sylvie and becomes consumed with her. Now, you haven't seen these. They're in evidence. But these are bank records from the Amados. Okay? Credit card statements, checking account statements. By all means, I implore you to look through these. And when you do, you will see a compendium, a compendium excuse me, of charges to the MyFreeCams website. I just picked, here's a random page. It's dated, this particular page is dated uh, November 20th. And on November 20th, there were one, two, three, four, five, six transactions, each $599.99. That's hundreds, by the way, not $5, for this particular website to tip this moment. On the 21st, the next day, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven transactions for almost 600 bucks a piece, $599.99. And it goes on, guys. I mean, I'm not going to belabor the point. But look at it. According to my notes, I'm not good at math. Fair warning. $20,000 in one night. 20 grand. And it's in here. The checking and credit cards alone was in excess of $169,000 over six months. If that's not the definition of unhealthy obsession, I don't know what is. Grant and Motto's defence team argued that investigators had always focused on their client as the main suspect in the murders and never considered the possibility that someone else could have committed the crimes. They again highlighted the lack of physical evidence connecting a motto to the murders. Defence attorney Jeff Dowdy said, they're just grasping and grasping because their timeline doesn't add up. The jury was sent off to deliberate. They could find Grant and Motto guilty or not guilty of first-degree murder. They also had the option to convict him on the lesser charges of second-degree murder or manslaughter. Jurors returned with verdicts more than eight hours later. There was an audible gasp in the courtroom from the wider Amato family, followed by sobs. There was no semblance of emotion from Grant Amato. Madam Clerk, if you could please publish the verdicts. If you could please stand, Mr. Amato. In the Circuit Court of the 18th Judicial Circuit in and for Seminole County, Florida, State of Florida versus Grant Amato, case number... 1933 CFA. Verdict, count one, Margaret Amato. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. Further finding, we further find beyond a reasonable doubt that during the commission of the offense, the defendant personally carried, displayed, used, threatened to use, or attempted to use a firearm or a weapon. The jurors found Grant Amato guilty of three counts of first-degree murder. The family then embraced before thanking Assistant State Attorney Stuart Stone. 
Less than two weeks later, the same jury who convicted Grant Emotto reconvened to determine his fate. Emotto was facing a sentence of life in prison or death. The prosecution called on three witnesses to provide victim impact statements, including the co-worker of Cody Emotto who called 911 and Cody's girlfriend, Sloan. Cody, I mean, Cody was the best kind of person. He cared so much about his job and his patients, and not just them, but his coworkers and his friends and his family. Like, he had so much love in him for everybody. He treated everybody the exact same with respect. He treated all his patients with the utmost care. Um, he was the gold standard of CRNAs. People still say, you know, they when they graduate, let, the students say when they graduate school they want to be like Cody because he set that bar so high, not only as a nurse anesthetist, but as a human being. Um, he was an amazing friend to all of us. He was the go-to guy if you had a medical question or if you just wanted to vent about something that had happened in the OR um, or if you just wanted to joke and laugh. He was, he was that guy. And, and finally, my last question is, tell, tell the jury how his loss, his death, has affected or impacted you and also the community at the hospital. It's been devastating for all of us. Um, it's difficult to accept that he was only 31 and he will never be any older. It's difficult for our coworkers to know that like his light is no longer in the OR and in the operating room, excuse me. And uh, we joke that the morale in the operating room died with him because it's just not the same. Um, he's very missed by all of his friends. He was an incredibly special person, not just to me, but to all of our friends. Jason Amato also provided a victim impact statement. His words brought the entire courtroom to tears, which surprisingly included his brother. Where do I, where do I begin? This has not only affected my life and those close to me, but the ripple effect has been widespread. I cannot give an exact number of how many people have felt the loss in my family, but there were hundreds of people at their funeral. The minister that led the service told me in his 50 years he has never seen a funeral with three caskets. It has been very hard to devote reflection to either my father, mother, or brother. As I start to think of one, it's hard to not think of the others. There are so many memories, stories, and special times that I will never forget. However, I will never be able to make new ones. Uh, my father was a great man that only wanted the best for his family, especially his boys. Dad's approach to anything in life could be a bit overboard, but he liked to know all the pros and cons of something as small as going to the grocery store or getting a big purchase like a car. Uh, I will never forget the life lessons my father taught me, and I will miss his advice. Uh, my mother had the best outlook on life. She always found the good, the good in a situation. There were times I didn't know what to think or do, and my mom was always there to guide me. One of the biggest things I miss is being able to talk to my mom. It's been 208 days. Sorry. 
lost your voice. But I am a better person because of my mother, and I am forever grateful for that. All right, so my brother Cody, he barely had a chance to make a name for himself. And let me tell you, he would have made a big one. Cody was a very motivated and caring man that took great pride in his profession while keeping his exemplary character outside of work as well. There are so many people that I have met in some way were touched by my brother. I will miss him dearly. Jason Omoto was asked whether he still loved his brother Grant, and he responded that he did. The defence would call on several witnesses of their own, including a psychologist. They tried to suggest that Emoto's actions were not premeditated. It was claimed there were other factors to weigh against the death penalty, such as Emoto's lack of a significant prior record, his age, that he was raised a Christian, and that he was an excellent student who had dedicated his professional life to providing care. Another factor cited was that he was a good brother and best friend to Cody, in spite of the fact that Imoto had just been convicted of Cody's murder. Dr Richard Carpenter said that Imoto had a low probability of committing violence again. Basically, as I said earlier, I don't believe that he possesses any of the uh, historical or behavioral characteristics that would suggest that he's likely to be violent or to present major uh, management problems for the institution and staff. I also think that in addition to that, there is a, a good likelihood that he could be a productive and well, a well-behaved inmate should he be given life. Ultimately, the jury could not reach a unanimous decision on the death penalty, which meant that Grant Imotto received an automatic life sentence without the possibility of parole. Once the life sentence was handed down, Grant Imotto immediately made an appeal, along with appealing his conviction. In a two-page notice, defence attorney Michael Mario Parolo listed ten decisions by Circuit Judge Jessica Rexeidler before and during the trial, which were the basis of the appeal. Since then, however, there has been no movement on the case, and Grant Imotto currently remains incarcerated at Okeechobee Correctional Institution. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson. Editing by Brad Maybe. Script editing, additional writing, illustrations and production direction by Rosanna Fitton. Narration, narration editing and production direction by Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.